sweethearts. Welcome to Love Letters 2. I'm Melissa. Hey friends, I'm Alicia. You are here for the twice a week podcast dedicated to the unexpected and delightful. Thanks so much for joining us today. And today, Alicia, you have a delightful love letter that focuses on April in Paris. Oh, it is April, Melissa, and there's no finer place to be than in the city of love, Paris. And today I have a love letter to a very private couple that you might not know about. And this couple and their two little bookstores change the landscape of 20th century literature. I love it already. I love the idea of a couple with two little bookstores in Paris. It's kind of quaint, isn't it? It is. Today, we're going to travel to the left bank of Paris, where it is said that Paris learned to think on the left bank. The left bank of Paris is the southern bank of the Seine River that cuts through Paris. And the left bank is bohemianism, counterculture, creativity. This area includes Montparnasse. Everybody is hanging out in the left bank, especially in the time that we're going to talk about today. Every writer, every artist, everyone of influence or note, name them, they were there. Don't you wish you had a time machine? A hundred percent. At the end of World War I, you have tourists that are now flocking to the left bank. It becomes a lot like a summer resort. Because by the end of World War I, prohibition has now been enacted within the United States, which leads many people to France where they would laugh at the idea of prohibition. Additionally, the American dollar is really going far in post-war France. Paris is the scene. And if you can get to Paris, that's where you're going to go. People flock to Paris and to the left bank to leave their mark on the 20th century. Two of our greatest lights of the lost generation in Paris and onward today, we're going to talk about. Both are writers, both are publishers, both are translators in their own right, but both are booksellers and their impact on literature by their tireless economic and social support of the writers and artists at the time cannot be understated. This is one of my favorite love letters about Paris. It begins with a French bookseller, Adrienne Monnier. She is born in Paris in 1892, and Adrienne's father, Clovis, is a postal worker. He sorts mail on the night trains, and Adrienne's mother is open-minded. She has an avid interest in the arts. And mom will encourage both Adrienne and her sister to read. Adrienne gets an education in the arts. She's in Paris. Her mom takes her to the theater and the opera and the ballet. Sounds like a great childhood. Well, remember the World's Fair comes to Paris in 1900. So Adrienne would have been eight at this point. Can you imagine seeing the Paris World's Fair at eight years old? No. In 1909. Adrienne graduates high school and will get a teaching qualification and in no time flat heads over to London. She wants to improve her English, but really Adrienne is following a girl whose name is Suzanne. Adrienne's in love. And I think this is her first love. So she kind of packs it up following the girl to London and 
Here, Adrienne will work as an au pair. She'll teach French for a little while. Adrienne and Suzanne have a bad breakup. And Adrienne will come back to France where she gets a job as a private school teacher. She'll go ahead and get her secretarial degree. And then it's going to find a gig in a publishing house. And it's on, kind of. Adrienne really likes publishing, but the place she's working seems to her very stiff. It's way too mainstream. And Adrienne is not into mainstream. She is a left bank kind of gal and is in the avant-garde set. So in a terrible stroke of bad luck for her father, Clovis, but in an extraordinary stroke of luck for Adrienne, her father, Clovis, is injured in a train crash at work. He's okay. He lives. But Clovis, because of this accident, is going to have a limp for the rest of his life. And so compensation will come in 1913, where the compensation amounts to about 10,000 francs, which is an enormous amount of money. a lot of money then. Clovis is going to give it to his daughter, Adrienne, so she may set up her bookshop which has been her lifelong dream to have a bookshop. Now, slight complication, because in Paris in 1914, women don't operate businesses. Certainly not solo, certainly not without a husband or a man to help. How could they? But hey, 1914, World War I happens, right? Mm -hmm. And women are going to begin playing a much bigger role of things happening in the city because- The men are off fighting. There are no men there. Right. We can do it. Right. So in November of 1915, Adrienne Monnier, who's 23, realizes her dream and opens her bookstore called La Maison des Amis de Livre, the house of friends and books. That's a perfect name for a bookstore. This little shop does open in the sixth arrondissement at 7 Rue de Lyon in Paris. It is in the thick, in the middle of all things happening avant-garde in Paris. And Adrienne is going to transform book selling into an artistic profession. Adrienne Manier invents the idea of a lending library in France. Amazing. It's amazing. Well, the cost of books is so high. And women at the time are very much financially disadvantaged. Yes. Housewives don't have spare money for books. Right. So Adrienne says, okay, I have a lending library. You can check out that book. And if you love it, come back and buy it. And if you don't bring it back, like this isn't the book for you. Adrienne believes that one has to read a book before buying it. This sets her apart completely. Adrienne is intrinsically interested in her customers and gets to know you and what you like to read. And in this way, she's able to direct and guide your reading habits by suggesting things that she knows you're going to like. She is developing a readership of women, this whole new generation of women, and they are really buying into her ideas. Creating a reading community. It's exactly it. So there's one lady and one bookstore. Let's meet our other half of this extraordinary couple. Nancy Woodbridge Beach is born in March in 1887. She's born in Maryland and she's going to change her name to Sylvia. She doesn't really like Nancy and that's fine. Sylvia's father is a preacher 
And he's going to get a job in Paris in 1902, where the Beach family will all go live and stay until about 1905, where they come back to New Jersey. But Sylvia lives sort of a life of an international child. The family is always traveling, and Sylvia will spend her childhood throughout many countries, including France, the United States, as well as Spain. Dad goes around a lot with his ministry, and when Sylvia is grown enough, it is back to Spain for a few years where she will work for the Red Cross in Serbia during the war. She wants to study contemporary French literature, also hang out where all the chicks are. There's no better place to do that than Paris. So Sylvia really, really, really likes books she has from childhood. And Sylvia is thin and tall and wears tailored clothing. And she's doing research for her French contemporary literature studies. And she will wander into that little bookstore, Les Maisons des Amis de Livre. And wouldn't you know it, there's Adrienne. Adrienne Monnier is short and curvy. She likes peasant style dresses, but hey, the two of them opposites attract, but the thing they have in common, they both really, really love books. And they hit it off and a love affair is born. In the fall of 1916 in Paris, these two opposites get together. And Sylvia, it turns out her secret dream has always been to open a bookstore too. Now, she thinks she'll do this in New York and Boston, but wouldn't you know it, these two fall in love. Paris it is. (laughs) And Sylvia's like, well, maybe I can open a bookstore too. But Sylvia's an expat, right? And she wants a different shop. Unlike her lovers, the same kind of shop, but for an opposite type of clientele. They both have ideas. And Adrienne, being a native French woman, She's like, I can help. I know how to get things done around here. So Adrian will give Sylvia advice about how to cut through the red tape as a non-French citizen and a little bit easier at this time because businesses have been taken over by women in the war. These two are living the dream. November 19th, 1919, a 32-year-old Sylvia will open her bookstore called Shakespeare and Company. In I love Paris. that too. Shakespeare and Company is the most delightful bookstore. It opens on a different road, but Sylvia is going to move its location to number 12, Rue de Leon, right across the street from Adrian's bookshop at number seven. Oh, so I they have that. across the street bookstores, which you think, right, would compete with each other. They work across the street and they do share some customers. But these two, oh my gosh, they fall in love. And it's this avant-garde lesbian love affair for the next 33 years. Wow. That they move into a place together right down the road from their two little bookstores. And what happens here is incredible. Their two bookstores become the center of cultural life for expatriates in Paris for the next two decades. So Adrienne and Sylvia are lovers. They're booksellers. And people come from all around. It's kind of a word of mouth thing. And Adrienne will handle her French clientele. That bookstore is a little bit more sedate. Shakespeare and Company, Sylvia's shop, is 
catering to expats. It is not sedate. It is bohemian. It is raucous. She, as a non-native French speaker, has sort of a cute way of doing things. So the French word for subscriber is a bon. And so she, Sylvia, will refer to her patrons as bunnies. Oh, that's adorable. It's not just a bookshop, though, Shakespeare and Company. It functions as kind of a clearinghouse for the lost generation. It's a lending library. It's a bank. It's an office. It's a crash pad upstairs if you need a place to hang out for a little while. Shakespeare and Company will host readings and social occasions. And again, right across the street from Les Amis de Livre, these two are lovers and friends and making their dreams come true. Absolutely unique in the history of time. Sounds like they were both really ahead of their time, not just personally, but as businesswomen too. Very, very much so. Both are going to not only be in love and have their bookshops, but both very much champion the works of women throughout this time. These two are leading this very quiet revolution from their bookstores. Now, naturally, there's a crossover. And their two bookstores sort of become the center of everything that is American and European, kind of a literary and cultural center of modernism, of avant-garde, just in these two bookstores. And something super fun, they are really beginning to do something different, which is set up displays in their front windows. It wasn't done until then. So... Sylvia will be like, ooh, I'm putting these books in my front window. And Adrian across the street is like, well, I've got a new display now. I love it so much. Sylvia Beach is instrumental into many, many authors. Just a few examples here. James Joyce, who publishes Ulysses in 1922. Sylvia is his biggest supporter. James Joyce is broke. Sylvia encourages him, feeds him. She will raise the funds for Ulysses to get printed. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. She, Sylvia Beach also, don't know if you've read Ulysses, Sylvia Beach coins the term Bloomsday to describe the day the novel set. Bloomsday is a huge deal in Ulysses. And she was the one who came up with that. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Okay. Sylvia is not only instrumental in James Joyce's career, Sylvia is also the first bookseller of Ernest Hemingway's books. His first book, Three Stories and Ten Poems, Sylvia sets up in one of those fancy, fancy window displays and Ernest Hemingway, goodness, Ernest Hemingway, you can just meet him right there next to his book because he's at Shakespeare and Company to come and check his mail. He receives his mail at Shakespeare and Company the entire time he lives in Paris. No way. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is kind of lovely. There is a wonderful little chapter, chapter three of Ernest Hemingway's Immovable Feast, in which he describes Shakespeare and Company. I'm going to read just a little bit of an Mm -hmm. excerpt because it's so beautiful. This is Hemingway naturally writing. In those days, there was no money to buy books books you borrowed from the rental library of Shakespeare and Company, which was the library and bookstore of Sylvia Beach at 12 Rue de Leon. 
On a cold, windswept street, this was a lovely, warm, cheerful place with a big stove in winter, tables and shelves of books, new books in the window, and photographs on the wall of famous writers, both dead and living. The photographs all looked like snapshots, and even the dead writers looked as though they had really been alive. Sylvia had a lively, very sharply cut face, brown eyes that were as alive as a small animal's and as gay as a young girl's, and wavy brown hair that was brushed back from her fine forehead and thick cut below her ears and at the line of the collar of the brown velvet jacket she wore. She had pretty legs and was kind, cheerful, and interested and loved to make jokes and gossip. No one that I ever knew was nicer to me. Oh, that is so descriptive. I feel like I really can imagine her and imagine the bookstore. This is so nice. He's... (laughs) I mean, of course, he's going to talk about her pretty legs. Here's (laughs) Hemingway, right? Mm -hmm. He does continue. I was very shy when I first went into the bookshop and I did not have enough money on me to join the rental library. She told me I could pay the deposit anytime I had the money. And she made me out a card and said I could take as many books as I wished. There was no reason for her to trust me. She did not know me and the address I had given her could not have been a poorer one. But she was delightful and charming and welcoming and behind her as high as the wall and stretching out into the back room, which gave on to the inner court of the building were the shelves and shelves of the richness of the library. It's really incredible to think about how she impacted literature through impacting authors. Every single author, every single artist. It's incredible what these two do. Adrienne will keep her store open throughout the occupation and another 10 years afterwards. Adrienne will write. She will begin literary magazines. Both Adrienne and Sylvia will translate as well. Adrienne will translate Hemingway first into French. A fun little project that our couple does together. Sylvia and Adrienne complete together the first French translation of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Wow. They do that together. All right. These two are really incredible. Sylvia does not have it so great during the war. She's going to close Shakespeare and company and sort of take her stock of books. She would rather close her doors than serve German officers. I'm not going to cater to Nazis is Sylvia's thinking. Sylvia is arrested and housed with other women's prisoners. They are housed in monkey cages at the Paris zoo. Mm, Unbelievable. Now her friends could pay the admission to get in the zoo to visit her in the monkey cage. Isn't that terrible? Terrible. That was a little bit better where she goes to next, which is a camp for American and British prisoners until her friends intervene to get her kind of busted out of that place, which they do. And Sylvia is going to wait out the rest of the war, just kind of lying low in Paris with Adrienne. In 1944, Paris is liberated. Hemingway crashes in one night to their home 
where much celebration is had. And he says, Shakespeare and company needs to open again, which will not happen in Sylvia's lifetime. In 1954, Adrienne is diagnosed with Meniere's disease, which will affect the inner ear. It causes tinnitus, hearing loss, migraines. It also is accompanied by severe vertigo. Yeah, that's bad. Adrienne will die by suicide in 1955. Sylvia will remain in Paris to her death in 1962 at the age of 75. Now, remember, Sylvia shuts down Shakespeare and Company. In December 1941, because she's not going to sell that copy of Ulysses to the Nazis. No. And even though Hemingway yells on the streets to reopen it, it never manifests. And Shakespeare and Company is just a thing of the past, gone forever. But no, it's not. It's still there. Some of you may have been there. I've been there. We know it exists today because there's a guy named George Whitman who comes to Paris on the GI Bill in the late 40s. Paris is having this renaissance at the time, similar to the lost generation, but this time it's kind of the beat generation. And George has the same idea. He's going to open a store in the fifth arrondissement. This is sort of in the shadow of Notre Dame. The location is a 17th century monastery that was once included in Notre Dame's footprint. It's sort of a nook and cranny kind of place, literally right next to Notre Dame. I can't think of a better location for a bookstore. Well, George Whitman opens his bookstore under the name of La Mistral in 1951, and it is an English language bookstore and becomes much like Sylvia's Shakespeare and Company, the place to be. This is the place to be for the beat generation. William S. Burroughs is said to have researched entire sections of his naked lunch there. (laughs) Allen Ginsberg, James Baldwin, Anais Neen, George Plimpton, a whole different set of influences. Right. And George Whitman has completely modeled his bookstore after Sylvia's. And he's having a great time. And there's one fateful night in 1958 at a dinner given for James Joyce that Sylvia says, you know, that nice George Whitman kid should be able to use the name of my shop. So in 1964, two years after the death of Sylvia, as well as the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth, George Whitman will rename his La Mistral bookstore to Shakespeare and Company, and a legend is reborn. I love that. George Whitman will love that bookstore and run the bookstore until his death at the age of 98 in 2011. Amazing. He dies in the apartment above the bookstore. His only child, Sylvia Beach Whitman. That's lovely. Runs the store now with her partner. She's been working there since 2003 with her father. That's a fantastic story. One other fun thing about Shakespeare and company, it is bohemian. It is a place of happy. It is a lovely place to visit. If you go there, they'll stamp your books. It is the friendliest, most wonderful bookstore I've ever been in. It's a Paris dream come true. You may have heard about another term though, Uh, tumbleweeds or tumbleweeding. 
George Whitman says he is a self-proclaimed tumbleweed. What does that mean? Kind of blowing from place to place, sheltered by the grace of strangers. So the motto of his bookstore at its founding is to be not inhospitable to strangers, lest they be angels in disguise. So George Whitman throws open his doors and nooks and crannies to any guest that wants to come, and he will rename them tumbleweeds. To date, Shakespeare and Company has hosted in their apartments above the bookstore almost 30,000 of these tumbleweeds. My goodness. Writers, artists, intellectuals, people go to Shakespeare and Company simply to tumbleweed and stay there. Incredible. Now, you can't really sign up for the gig. They don't take reservations. You show up and ask for Sylvia. Okay. Now, if you want to try this, the wintertime is a little bit less crowded in the summertime. But there are a few requirements if you are going to tumbleweed. You got to be tidy. You always got to clean up after yourself. You need to be okay with not a whole lot of privacy. There's no room. (laughs) There's no private room for you. You maybe have a bed, maybe a fold away. Maybe you're sleeping on a piano bench, maybe a nook in the bookstore. A few other requirements. You do have to read a book a day and you do (laughs) have to help out in the shop every day for a two hour shift. That sounds fair to me. To leave your tumbleweeding time, you are also asked to write a single page biography accompanied by your picture for their archives. There are five decades of these archives now. That is incredible. It would be so interesting just to read through those archives of all the people that have stayed there. Some tumbleweeds stay a few days. Some stay a few months. There's one dude, legend, who stayed for seven years. No. Wow. There's a creed of the tumbleweed hotel, so to speak. And I think it is a good way to leave our love letter today. The tumbleweed hotel creed is give what you can, take what you need. That should be a creed for life. Here's to you. Adrienne Monnier and Sylvia Beach and your two bookstores that absolutely and utterly change the world. Very inspiring story that definitely left me feeling happy and sort of a faith in mankind. Well, we know the contributions of all the writers and all the artists, and they're the ones that sort of get the, yeah. the shine, but it's these two women. And their utter devotion to the talent of not only their patrons, but their friends that make such a tremendous impact within 20th century literature. It's an incredible story. I think that wraps me up for today. It's a little bit of a April in Paris love letter. We're going to be back with you next Tuesday with two brand new love letters. Thank you so much for joining us today, friends. Have a fantastic day. And until we meet again, stay in love. Thanks for listening to Love Letters 2, a Hemlock Creatives production. Feel like showing some love to Love Letters 2? 
We'd love it if you tell a friend or leave us a kind review or even come and visit us on social media. You can find us at Instagram or Facebook at Love Letters 2 Podcast. You can also reach out and email us at loveletters2podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at loveletters2podcast.com. Until we meet again in the next episode, darlings, stay in love.